Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I am happy to introduce Dr. Jens Rossweiler, Professor and Chairman of Urology at Danube Private University in Krems, Austria. He's a world leader in minimally invasive surgery and one of the top innovators of ureteroscopic robotic technology. His expertise and international recognition in the area of endourology and stone disease is well regarded, and I'm honored to have him as a guest today. We'll be speaking about the current status of robotics in the field of endourology. Dr. Ressweiler, uh, great to have you, and thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, Brad, uh, thank you. It's an honor for me uh, to be with you. Uh, I really enjoy it, and I think it's also a very interesting topic uh, regarding our future as uh, endourologists. So with that, I'll start off, and uh, why don't you just describe to us what is the current status of robotics in ureteroscopy? So there are several trials on the way or have been on the way uh, to really try to use, let's say, the technology similar to the Da Vinci technology to more or less steer the ureteroscope. And it started uh, with a Hansen device. And it's interesting uh, that the same inventor of, of Intuitive, uh, he was also involved uh, in, this, in the other uh, devices. And the Hansen device was, was done just for uh, angiography to allow the radiologist to move the catheter around. And um, Dr. Desai, uh, I think he tried to use this device in a kind of passive way to move the ureteroscope up. And he had, of course, some help. There was an endoscopic view, and also um, they could uh, do X-ray to monitor it. But the problem was that it's not, let's say, an own movement like we are used to do this. It was kind of passive movement. And this uh, really became a problem after 18 cases, so they have to stop it. So then, a long time, nothing happened. But uh, I was lucky to be in contact with the a Turkish company, Elmet, and Dr. Ramsey Saklam, who had the idea to develop and was really funded by the military uh, and, and other institutions, academic institutions in Turkey, to re really modify just the movements that you do with your hand with a kind of manipulator. So the manipulator has a kind of, you can say, scaffold where you put in the scope. So you, you use the same scope, but without your hands. So the movement of your hands turning around is then done at the console. So these uh, two parts are there. And this was a, a way on the prototype to find the optimal way of irrigation, the optimal way of flexion, deflection, and so on. And uh, finally, the final product, it's this Avicenna Roboflex, uh, which we were using now I would say since the last five years uh, in the last version, uh, at least at the, my, my former uh, place at the SLK clinic. And so uh, we were doing this every day. And what the good thing is, is that all these problems that you usually have when you stand there, 
um, and you do your case, or you can also sit there in a flexible hydroscopy, you can do this on a final level sitting at the console. And this is the difference. And this is really the thing that has now happened. Now, the ORIS system, and interesting, I think uh, Ethicon has, has uh, bought it. This is the third type, which may come up. But it's, again, uh, more or less a combination. It comes from a tool that is used for bronchoscopy. And for bronchoscopy, of course, you have also movements. First, it was angiography. Now it's bronchoscopy. And for bronchoscopy, looking for tumors, this device has been done. And it's also, of course, allows also flexible movements now on its own. But it's, of course, not made directly for hydroscopy. So we have to check out how this is going on. Uh, they have also now uh, developed, let's say, a third arm to use it for percutaneous access with um, the company. And so we will see what is going on. I must say the only really working device that we, that we have is the Avicenna Roboflex. And it's an, in several uh, institutions it works. It has not yet, whatever, uh, had this explosion like Da Vinci had at certain times. So the problem is similar. Uh, you know, I started 2001 or even 2000 with a Da Vinci, and uh, I could not convince uh, the people from Intuitive at that time either to give me the device or we would pay for the parts. They wanted both of us. Uh, the price at that time was remarkably low, uh, if you compare it to now. Maybe I should have done it, but it has not. It was not possible at that time, and and you know it took a time that it it was started in Germany by Binder in Frankfurt, and then it came over to the States, and many men really popularized it, and it came back now to Europe, and and probably this is what what needs to happen, uh, probably with the device that it's uh, really distributed more. I can tell you, uh, it's a working horse, so we don't have. Uh, significant problems, uh, it's safe. It has uh, some sa security mechanisms. And of course it is now, uh, it has a maintenance like, like the other devices, uh, you know, robots like the Da Vinci device. And so I must say, I'm very happy with this device. Uh, and uh, as, as I told you now, it's not a matter of only one surgeon, it's a matter of three, four surgeons uh, that are you, or endourologists that are using it uh, in, in our institution. So some of the so just to recap, it's it's essentially a master slave system. Yes. But but utilizing the actual scope that urologists are familiar with. So yes, those familiar with the Da Vinci, it's a similar foundation, a similar kind of gadget video game concept, if you will. But we're actually using the exact same scope that we would normally use. And, and can you use a disposable scope in this? In this, uh... yes, uh, of course. Initially, they had the idea, and and it depends on the time when it was developed. Let's say twenty fifteen or something like this, where the disposables were not really on the market. But in the meantime, when they came on the market, we already arranged with the company, so we have and actually we use this mostly have um, let's say a scaffold for the Boston Littleview device. And we had it for the Poussin device. And it is theoretically possible for any device. Apart from this, it is possible for stores, for Richard Wolff, uh, the Cobra, and, and all these things. It's possible. So we, we have this. 
It's a very little thing. You just exchange a part of this scaffold and then you can use the other device. The problem is, you know, maybe also the, the ideas about uh, disposables and reusables, the costs, uh, the problems that we have with re-sterilization. And the more you talk to people, the more you hear. And I published some data, which I was uh, thought, oh, I'm not a very good, or we are not a very good institution. It costs us a lot of repairs. Uh, that we had. And then if you talk to the colleagues, uh, they, they have the same problems. And sometimes you cannot really define where it happens. So, so uh, if you have a difficult stone, uh, mostly we use a disposable one for this, uh, because you have to go uh, in and out often. So it's not a one pick stone. Even for a one pick stone, you see the robot, it doesn't, it's worthwhile. Uh, it's not worthwhile to, to, to mount it. But if you have a, let's say, uh, 1.5 centimeter stone or multiple stones, then it's really the way to go. And uh, I can tell you from the practical point of view, you know, we are trying probably as a, this is our approach with any kind of laser. We have the trillium fiber laser, we have the holmium laser uh, in different versions uh, to start with a dusting process, uh, usually with the bigger stones. Um, and then at a certain time, you may have to convert into whatever the popcorn, I call it uh, a jacuzzi effect, uh, because it's, it was Whirlpool, uh, Beglin named it like this. So, so it's because it's not a real popcorn. It looks like popcorn, but it's not physically a popcorn, pop popcorning. And, and so, and this, you, you can imagine, you can really, um, maybe as a, you use just your foot pedal, every other thing is stable. So you can, the device, you can change your laser fiber a little bit to increase this whatever uh, jacuzzi effect, uh, whirlpool effect of, of, of the fragments coming, coming to the laser fiber. And this is completely different when you do it, uh, let's say in the classical way, because you are standing there, you have the laser fiber and, and here everything is fixed. You can move the laser fiber back and forth uh, with the device. You can, and I think this is important. Um, you, you can turn it, you, you can put it left, right. You only, have, you only have one variable. Yeah. You only have one variable. And so let, let, me, let, me, have, let me play devil's advocate. And uh, a lot of listeners might say, why do we need a robot to do your reteroscopy? How, how would you answer that? Yeah, we long time thought we could do laparoscopic radical prostatectomies uh, also. And I must honestly say, when the people did not follow me, the intuitive people at that time, it was not a problem. And the force came obviously more from the patient side that the robotic as let's say uh, the use of the robot was 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 mainly whatever driven by patients' desire, at least on the prostate. And I must say, if we have the trend, and I'm not the the absolute fan of mini perk in this regard because this is the competition more or less. Because mini perk, you could say, okay, I do a mini perk for one point or two two centimeter stone then I don't need the robot. But if you want to do a good job with these, let's say, more complicated stones, then you get a lot of help. And I would say it's, it's mainly a cost issue, which finally turned out, in my view, not uh, to be really a cost. So we, we will not uh, became deficient. The only problem I must honestly say, this is uh, in Germany, I don't know how it's in the States, 
flexible ureteroscopy is not well uh, paid at the moment. So it, it, we have these calculation hospitals and the more we do, the more we get now. Uh, finally, we, we have achieved that we get a reimbursement for the single-use scopes. And so probably this could also, uh, let's say, bring uh, the robot a little bit further because obviously if you have not adequate reimbursement for the classical flexible ureteroscopy, why should you use the robot? This is a, a concern. I, I agree completely that people may have. But I would say in the long run, if you are a stone center, um, I, I love it and I will never go back. I'm going to kind of group this next uh, topic. Uh, there are three components, but they're, they're not that complicated. You mentioned safety, you know, uh, intuitive uh, and the Da Vinci robot has, I think, on the order of 1400 safety checks per second. I would just like you to address maybe some of the safety mechanisms built into place, but I would also ask you to comment on the tactile feedback or haptics, if there are any, and you still require a bedside assistant. I would not say that I still require. I think this is one advantage of the robot that you separate the assistant from the surgeon because then the assistant can work freely at the bedside. He needs to be there because like in intuitive, you need to uh, put in hemologs or whatever, clip appliers or something like this, or changing the instruments. So here you have to insert, let's say uh, the, a dormia basket or, or whatever you engage, whatever you want to take out the fragment. And the fragment extraction is a combined work because of course you will not Go back as a, with a, you can go back with the inst, with the instrument until you reach the sheath. We are using usually an exercise for these cases, so this is uh, your your thing, and the assistant just has to gra grab the fragment that that it's there, and then you can closely buy. But once it's in the exercise, then it is pulled out by the assistant. Uh, you know, so so this is just uh, he pulls it finally out. Uh, de de um, uh, places the, 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 the fragment for collection and then reinserts the scope. There are, uh, there is not a, a real tactile feedback for the surgeon, of course, it's not, it's similar, but of course the assistant has this feedback. So for example, does the fragment uh, pass into the exosheath? So this is something that of course you get experience, but your assistant tells you, oh, no, <laughs> it's not working anymore, so please leave it. So that's why we, I like very much to use the N-gauge, and, and then we have to fragment further until we take it out. So this is always an important collaboration. So this is something. They have a security mechanism, what means the turning of the instrument. So this is a kind of safety that is not turning wildly uncontrolled. This is clear. But you cannot compare uh, the, the Avicenna in this regard with a Da Vinci device. Uh, but of course, it's, it's also not so complex. Uh, it is only one uh, arm. And uh, you see, of course, when we are using a scope, for example, if you advance it and you don't see that it goes forward, then the assistant immediately notices this because you see a kind of serpentine creation of the scope, you know, outside. And so you cannot force it. And you have to, of course, to be careful with doing this. 
you do everything under optical control. This is what I would say. Usually also you should insert the laser fiber before bending it. So let's say you go in, see where the stone is, then you can go back a little bit, insert the fiber, and then you come back. Only in very, very complicated cases, uh, we, then you have to try to bring the fiber directly. Uh, these are, it's, it's also possible, uh, but of course, this is not the classical way. Do you put the scope into the sheath and then lock it into the mechanism, or is, do you assume your position and let um, the assistant do all it's that? Like, no, it's like I do it with Da Vinci. All the chokers are placed. I sit okay. at the console, and here it's the same. Okay. So, so I, I'm not I'm not sterile. Sure. See? So, so it's clear this is all their job. As they, you see, when I, as I just see the scope out coming out of the exosheath, and then it's my part. Yeah. So it's really like it is. Very good. Pretty, very good. Let me ask you, you, you touched on it very briefly with the Oris system. What is the future of robotics? Or no, what's the current status of robotics in percutaneous surgery? We all do a lot of perks. Mm. Um, what, what can we expect in robotics for percutaneous surgery? Anything out there currently? Uh, the, I, I saw a paper because, you know, uh, I, had a, I just had to give a lecture, or to, to, in two days I have to give a lecture at the, at the Satsanjaki meeting about, uh, you see, new technologies, urology. And so I, I came by this idea that I knew uh, uh, a long time ago about this um, the third arm of the ORI system and, and they, they you see they have some of the first experiments showing that the arm may alleviate the puncture. Honestly, I must say we you know we had some trials with the iPad and it, it's not the problem in this regard is that uh, you have a um, soft tissue navigation. So the kidney will always move. And uh, probably, <laughs> I would say uh, the improvement of ultrasound uh, as for puncturing in the combination, which we do for a long time, uh, will probably more easy than to use a robotic arm. It's different if you have, a, let's say, the spine or something. This you can also already puncture with a cooker arm. No problem, because you have a rigid system, so it's rigid navigation. This works out, and, and maybe even better, you know. So let's say if you want to work on, on, on discs or something like this, painful uh, laser application for this, uh, for, for this is, I can say, okay, intervertebrally, but for the, the, as a, the, the soft tissue, the, the kidney is, is usually mobile, so you you need a kind of real time maneuver, and the only real time maneuver what we have uh, is is either fluoroscopy, you know, the technique bull's eyes or so, or ultrasound. So honestly, I must say I don't see a lot of future. And the, and the the only thing could be the let's say once you have an access and and you would have a primary uh, flexible device inside. So, so, but you see, then I can ask why, why do I need the percutaneous axis? Yeah, so, so then I can come from below and do the same thing. Very good. Very enlightening, sir. It's very good. I'd like to just wrap it up by asking you um, what could possibly come next in this field? I mean, obviously we are trying to distance ourselves from the patient and uh, be more precise and be less fatigued and what's possibly next in the field of robotics certainly in endourology 
So you may have heard about the virtuoso system Dr. Harrell and Mrs. Miller are working on. And this is an interesting technology because this is a different type. So the mechanics behind is a cannula, a small cannulas inside each other. So that allow these movements. And this is very interesting. If you look at the video is what they can produce now. Uh, let's say to do an on-block resection, it's, it's still a model, but it, it might be interesting that you do your TOR or different techniques, not only, let's say, with, with one hand, so then you can have two instruments. I think this is something which is on the way. And I, I see, I must say, I see, see also, uh, you see some a lot of uh, more uh, applications there. Then, of course, we have... Uh, I also in the States, probably the, the, the experience of um, Thorsten Bach, mainly uh, in Germany with the aquablation system, which, you know, something aquablation shows what does the robot and you can say suprahuman performance. And, and this is clear, five gram in six, uh, 60 gram in five minutes, this is suprahuman. So we will never resect this, ablate this. The only thing is, of course, the bleeding afterwards, and we heard of, of some injuries of the rectum, but this was with the, with the probe, was not with the, with the uh, dissector, so it was the ultrasound probe who, 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 who did these problems. Shows you that we are on a way, uh, finally, uh, probably to, to help, uh, that will help us in, in doing, let's say, a better, as I said, superhuman, better surgery, better result. And, and I guess this is... Uh, more or less unstoppable. So, so it will continue and uh, people will not go back. I'm, I'm quite sure it takes time until this is the distribution is there. But as you see, take these two examples uh, in the lower tract uh, surgery in endourology. I think we are here directly on the way. Absolutely fascinating. Very eager to see it. And it's incredible what's happened in our lifetimes, uh, going from uh, open to microscopic to laparoscopic to robotic. So, Dr. Rossweiler, we uh, genuinely appreciate your expertise and your innovation. And um, we want to thank you very much for joining us. So I must say it was an, a pleasure uh, to discuss these, uh, uh, maybe to discuss the future of urology, of endourology. And uh, it was a pleasure for me. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast. <laughs>